to repent when necessary. That, that should always be something that we're open to, right? So that's the purpose of this class. And then to see once again the beauty of Jesus, especially in his incarnation, suffering, and sacrificial death. And I think the reason I put those three things on there specifically is going to become clear as we keep moving forward. To further instill a welcoming ethos into the DNA of Resurrection SD, that's kind of where this whole idea came out of, is that Rob and I were talking about, we were talking specifically about uh, homeless outreach and equipping people from different walks of life to feel capable of reaching out to someone from a very different walk of life, like someone who's homeless. And, um, you know, having the foundation, the theological foundation, and the practical foundation to be able to do that in a sensitive, gentle, and uh, strategic way. But then as we were sort of thinking about that, we realized it's not just limited to homeless outreach specifically. There's, there's these same ideas are relevant to how we think about reaching out to all different kinds of people that are all around us in San Diego. Um, and, you know, that has to be something that as a church we're actively focusing on instilling into the, our culture as Respres. Because as we saw in those verses before, um, there is this dividing wall of hostility that our sin innately creates. And we, sin gravitates onto any imaginable line or barrier that it can find in order to divide. So it's not going to come naturally to anyone to cross those barriers. It's going to take really delving deep, repenting, and seeing what the Bible has to say. And then shameless promotion, number six. <laughs> um, I have two new jobs working for the Ladle Fellowship and the Downtown Fellowship, both of which are homeless ministries out of this church, out of First Presbyterian Church. And we really need volunteers for different roles, especially we need, we need mentors who are going to commit to long-term relationships with individuals. But we also need um, people on Wednesdays who can just come and hang out and just kind of chit-chat and make it a welcoming environment. We need people for street corner care, which is our medical outreach ministry. So there are, we just, there's a lot of volunteers that we need, and it's my job to recruit volunteers. So this is just, I'm letting you know right now, this is just shameless promotion of these ministries. Um, but the idea of laying this foundation is, again, to, to help us all feel um, better equipped to enter potentially, um, to enter situations that might be different or uh, uncomfortable and to feel more equipped and more comfortable in those situations. Okay, so continuing on with the why. Number one, I already said, because sin, sin is the thing that distances people from each other. Again, you could take something like race or class or language or culture. That isn't, inher- isn't inherently divisive. It's when our sin attaches onto these um, differentiators between people and turns it into a competition or a superiority contest. That's when the division comes. And it's sin that's doing that. It, that's not just an inherent part of, of the human experience. 
Because culture inevitably shapes communication. So this that means, you know, even if two people are speaking English, if they're coming from different cultural frameworks, different backgrounds, different life experiences, they might be using the same words but in very different ways. And that's going to be happening whether or not we consciously recognize that or not. And so if we fail to pay attention to the ways that culture shapes communication, our communication isn't going to be as good. That's what Paul's saying. He says, to the Greeks, I became like a Greek to win the Greeks. He's shaping his communication to that culture that he's trying to reach. Rather than coming in with a, a Jewish set, a Jewish style of communication when he's talking to Greeks. So we got to recognize the role that, that culture plays. Um, because the diversity and unity is a characteristic of the Christian church. Again, we saw that from Revelation, from Ephesians, 1 John. The New Testament defines what makes diversity along race, ethnicity, gender, and class, status, all these different categories, a defining feature of what the Christian church is supposed to look like. So if that's true of the New Testament church, that should also be church that should also be true of our churches. Because the gospel equalizes us three times over. This is something that has really impacted me thinking about this. That the fact that we're all made in the image of God is a very equalizing doctrine. The fact that we're all impacted by original sin, that no one is exempt from having a sinful nature, is also an equalizing doctrine. And then the fact that our salvation is by grace alone, it's something that we freely received and not earned, is a very equalizing doctrine. So these three you know, central doctrines to what the Bible teaches, to what the gospel teaches, that we're made in the image of God, all infected by sin, and that our salvation is only by grace, truly levels the playing the playing field among all people in a way that a, a godless worldview actually couldn't do. If you took those doctrines out of the equation, we, we, it would quickly turn into just a pure competition or superiority complex of who has the highest IQ or what society has, the most, has accrued the most economic wealth. And there would be no uh, real reason to say that even though one person has a higher IQ than another or one society has more wealth than another, despite those things, there's still a baseline equality that idea of baseline equality among all people comes from these Christian doctrines. So this is a very Christian biblical idea. Because Jesus crossed social barriers all the time, we're going to see that, but that was characteristic of his ministry, and it was one of the biggest reasons that he was hated, is that he did not respect the social barriers, the social norms of his time. And he made a point of reaching out across those barriers in very visible ways. And then because of the incarnation, this is the biggest social barrier that was ever crossed, which is that God became man. That the barrier between divinity and humanity, the impossible barrier between creator and creation, was crossed through Jesus in his incarnation. 
so if we're thinking about that as our framework for ministry too, then that's going to be really impactful, which is kind of the main point I'm going to try to make today. Okay, so today's outline is to think about three um, ideas. I know it's hard to read on the grainy screen, but the first barrier is this idea of uncleanness. Now, again, you might have expected, I don't know what you guys were expecting, if you were expecting to see, like, race or class or culture up there as a barrier. But I think, again, I want to try to delve deeper and below those superficial barriers and see what's really going on inside our hearts and minds that latches onto those things and turns them into walls between people. So one of those ideas is this idea of uncleanness. And then we're going to try to look at how the incarnation destroys that barrier. Then there's a barrier of pain, especially coming into contact with somebody else's pain and the discomfort that that often causes us. And how this idea of Jesus as the wounded healer and how Jesus heals us from his wounds uh, transforms how we come into contact with other people's wounds and other people's pain. And then the third one is a well-documented phenomenon of culture shock. Um, And thinking about, we're going to go back to that passage from 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how he thinks as a missionary and see how that idea of missionary learning, missionary studying, um, helps us get past our culture shock. Okay? Any questions? Again, just feel free to interrupt at any time. Okay. Um, Uncleanness and contamination. There's a quote I heard from George Orwell several years ago from the 1930s. So it was, um, he was in a world where communism was kind of still a new idea and was taking over societies. And he said, um, you know, no matter how much of a communist you think you are, when, you come in, when, when, when you're with somebody whose breath stinks, you, you're, you hate that person, basically. In other words, you might think that you're this humanitarian, egalitarian, um, you know, champion of the lower classes, but some of these class divides of actual just physical barriers of like different standards of hygiene can be a barrier between people. That's almost this physical reaction. I saw this when I was in Le Fay in Honduras, and we would have um, visiting groups of American Christians come down for like a week at a time. And Le Fay was a very poor neighborhood with a very different standard of hygiene. And people were bathing in the river, and um, you know it was just a different environment. Everything's dusty, everything's dirty, but that's just normal life. But I, you could see sometimes the faces, the looks on people's faces when they first came in and they see the litter on the sides of the streets and they see the kids little kids walking around naked and um, the dilapidated homes and it, it, it was you could see a sort of physical 
it wasn't intentional. It was completely subconscious. But it was this physical reaction of. Oh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, this, this like very physical reaction to a class difference, right? And that's not just that doesn't have to be just cross cultural in terms of other countries. Um, you know, you drive to different parts of San Diego, different parts of downtown, and and feel that just physical level of the difference in standard of living and how that feels. Uh, you just feel the uncleanness, you know, on a physical level. Which, you know, you think about the Old Testament mosaic law, so many rules about if you have discharges, if you have skin diseases, if your house has mold, um, certain types of food, these very physical things that were classified legally as unclean and contagious. So if you are unclean because of your skin disease and you touch someone else or come into contact with somebody else, they might not have the same disease, but they are now unclean. So this uncleanness is transferable and contagious, which is you know a big part of the Old Testament law. And I think that that is our default mode: is that the uncleanness is what's contagious, not the cleanness. You know, my health doesn't transfer to you, but your sickness does transfer to me. Um, so we feel this fear of contamination. I think on a physical level, it's, you know, that's one thing. I think that sort of the more, the more, the more time I spent in La Fay, I didn't even see that stuff anymore. Um, just by exposure, length of exposure. I think that can go away. I think what has potentially more sticking power and is actually probably more problematic in terms of relationships between people is when we transfer this idea of uncleanness or contamination onto people's moral lives. Um, there, there's, I, I read an article a couple of years ago that talked about the argument from ickiness which was reflecting on the way that those of us who may have been raised in the church, um, you know, obviously depending on the circumstances, but I think a lot of us maybe were the primary way to think about homosexuality as being wrong was along this argument for ickiness. It's wrong because it's gross, you know, because there's something repulsive about it or there's something repulsive about gay people and that was kind of the main thrust of the argument this idea of uncleanness like that's a particularly unclean category of sin but the problem with that is that there's no actual ethical content to that at all it's just a feeling of uncleanness or a feeling of repulsion there's no substance behind that to back it up and make an ethical or moral case. So then what happens is that as people grew up and had gay friends that were not repulsive to them, 
suddenly it was like, wait, why did I think this was wrong? The ickiness wasn't there anymore, and so then the conviction in in that ethical stance was also lost for a lot of people from my generation. You know, because there was no substance. It was just this feeling of repulsion. And once that went away, so did the idea that it was even sinful at all. I think there's a big lesson to be learned there for the church in terms of how we talk about that issue in particular in homosexuality. But I think maybe even now, um, increasingly, as we're thinking about the next the next stage, sort of in the the sexual revolution of transgenderism or gender fluidity, and how this is a huge new arena for the church to try to navigate. And it would be very easy for, for the church to respond to those issues in a similar way and base the argumentation on just ridicule or repulsive or repulsion, avoiding an actual substantive ethical case that draws on uh, something more than just feeling repulsion. Because again, when you grow up and you have friends and your social group doesn't find it repulsive, like, wait, what? What was the problem with this? That foundation is totally erased. Because it wasn't a foundation. It was just this visceral feeling. Um, so th- the idea here is that this moral uncleanness and how we think about it and how we think about other people's uh, immorality and how we tend to think of it as this thing that's like, the, as if it were contagious, as if we could catch it when we're in certain situations or with certain people, is a huge, can be a huge barrier between just being with people and meeting people where they're at. Um, so here's the big idea for this concept is that social discomfort that's moralistic that's focused on how I'm morally uncomfortable with this person or what they're doing or what this setting and what's going on here is at least partially fueled by this fear of contamination like by being around this person or by being in this setting I'm somehow being tainted as well on a moral level which, what's the presupposition that's underneath that? Right. That you're unclean and I'm clean and you might <laughs> get me dirty. Right? That's, that's the inherent presupposition that's underlying that. Um, I saw this quote from, from an article. And it, I, I'm going to point out a second. I think this really goes both ways that in terms of, um, well, have you guys heard the term purity culture before? Purity culture has usually been referred to, to, to some Christian cultures where the emphasis on sexual purity is so much the center of attention and so focused on to the exclusion of other, of other things that it becomes this, um, you know, one perceived misstep 
in that area one perceived deviance from the standard and you're like a tainted you're now tainted um, that's what purity culture has referred to and I think that's been the case in a lot of our churches I, I think there it also happens on the flip side um, in some other types of churches but also outside the church where there's a there's this purity culture ideologically or um, purity culture of um, sort of a progressive fighting injustice that attaches this same type of uh, emphasis and how everything comes back to fighting injustice, changing our language, being politically progressive. And if you make one um, transgression, if you fail to use somebody's preferred pronoun or if you make a racially insensitive joke, you know, you're tainted. You haven't lived up fully to that standard of of ideological purity. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? I think it can very much happen on sort of both sides of the political or cultural spectrum. It's just that the you know this side has fixated on sexual morality as the one thing you have to get right, and if you don't get that right, then you're outside. And this other side has uh, centered its attention on uses of language and uh, how we view different categories of people and identity labels. And if you make one error in that area, then you're out. But see how it's the same psychologically and, and spiritually, the same thing is happening. It's this setting up this harsh divide where it's very fair saying that we're, we are clean and you or they are not. Um, and I don't want to make that sound like sexual morality or social justice are unimportant. They're very important, both of them. And I think there's also a lot of wisdom in, you know, taking care of choosing who your friends are because you will be influenced by the people that you spend time with and it's still for an alcoholic to be constantly hanging out with heavy drinkers and calling that ministry obviously um, there's a lot of problems with that and that's you know hopefully we can agree on still some kind of common sense wisdom guidelines like that like if you're if you're particularly vulnerable in a certain area then you still want to be careful what you surround yourself with and what sort of, sort of settings you put yourself in. That's still true. But the big idea is that this moralistic barrier that we tend to put up at its root level is, is this harsh divide that we're making in our minds between who's clean and who's not clean. And it's driven by this fear of, of our perceived cleanness being kind of contaminated by something else. No, what you're saying is even worse than that. What you're, say, what you're saying is that the, the biggest cultural divide between us is between these two warring purity camps. Yeah. And they have diametrically opposed views on what cleanness and uncleanness is. So the church has this unbalanced view of purity and it's trying to reach people who believe that that sexual freedom is is is, is goodness, 
in that, in that but any kind of oppression of sin. Mm -hmm. So then when we approach them, they see us as unclean. Yes. We're the unclean ones. Right. And we're, if we approach them thinking they're the unclean ones, then it makes it a double whammy. <laughs> right. So it's, that, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Really what you're saying right now makes it all the more important for us to be humble. Right. And forgiving. And remember how that we are, that, we, that, that they're right, and that we're all we are. Yeah. Yes. So let's think about Jesus. What did Jesus do in his society that was also characterized by this super hyper sense of uncleanness? You, most of you are probably familiar with the story. I don't need to read it. Um, he's going through a crowd, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, which meant she had been unclean, legally unclean, for 12 years. So no one could touch her, or they would be contaminated by her on a physical level. Again, kind of those that class barrier that we talked about in the beginning. A physical sense of being contaminated by somebody else's uncleanness. And Jesus asked, who touched me? And he has her say in front of the entire crowd what her issue was. <laughs> and, and highlighting that this woman and that they had touched. That just in and of itself, that there was a physical touch between this woman and Jesus was really dramatic. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So Jesus completely disregards this physical uncleanness that was a huge stigma for this woman. Touch your lovers and dead people. Yeah, all over the place. And and that you know, physically and again morally. This is another familiar story probably where the the woman who was known as a sinner, whatever that meant in, barges in on a Pharisee dinner party, and falls all over Jesus, and is like kissing his feet, you know, very intimate, very scandalous, and the Pharisee says, classic uncleanness type of thinking, right, if this woman were a prophet, no, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she, that she is a sinner, you know, if Jesus knew what was up, he would know that he's getting dirty by being in contact with this woman. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he tells the story about you know, being forgiven much, produces much blood, and he uses her as the sort of the heroine of the story. So again, physically and morally, Jesus completely pushes aside these barriers. The fact that there was physical touch, I think, is important. There's something powerful about literally just putting your hand on somebody's shoulder or Jesus, you know, having this woman at his feet so close to him. And the fact that it was a woman was even more scandalous and um, clearly damaged his reputation. And so it's just this, this intimacy where Jesus draws near so close to these stigmatized and And I think that is where we arrived here, is that it's the incarnation. It's that God has come as close to us as he possibly could. 
by becoming one of us. That blows the whole unclean, clean divide apart. Um, I'm going to read this a little bit. It's kind of a long quote, but it just really struck me, so I figured I'd share it. It's from this book, um, Knowing Christ by Mark Jones, talking about the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. It says, Christ had limitations according to his human nature. He developed from infancy into manhood and experienced a growth in knowledge that was appropriate to his stage in life. He had to be taught by his father. He had to content himself that not everything was revealed to him during his time on earth. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. He learned obedience through suffering. He learned of his future sufferings through reading the Old Testament scriptures. We must secure room for a purely human development in the life of Jesus in order to do justice to the scriptures and Christ's human nature. If he did not have both a human body and a human soul, then the incarnation did not entirely take place and some aspect of our humanity could not be redeemed. As the early church father Gregory Nazianzen famously declared, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. His body and soul are no less real, no less real than our bodies and souls. Th- this is the biblical idea of the incarnation. I think other traditions in Christianity have um, sort of underemphasized the humanity of Christ, as if he was just a divine mind walking around in a shell of a human body. But, but what? the Bible really presents it as is that not only was it an empty human body occupied by a divine mind, but that Christ was fully and completely human in every way. Human body and soul. And God. <laughs> At the same time. Right? That is the doctrine of the incarnation. That's the hypostatic <coughs> unity. <coughs> yes. 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 <laughs> um, yes. So the, just drawing out the drama of how uh, extreme the incarnation was and is, that God, who is more other than us from anything that we could possibly imagine, has come that close to us to experience a human development from infancy to childhood to adulthood like we all have to suffer, to feel hunger, to feel anger, to feel sadness. The whole gamut of the human experience except sin that he has fully participated in. That's the incarnation. He's come as close to us as he possibly could. And we saw that Jesus didn't fear anybody's uncleanness. There was no fear in him of being contaminated. His in fact, it, you know, his cleanness really is what radiated out. When he touched a leper, they were a leper, they were healed. Not that he got leprosy. Right? So the the transfer of of contagiousness went from cleanness to his cleanness was making other people clean. So he was completely without fear. He could draw near to the sinful woman or the, the bleeding woman or the leper or any other stigmatized person and be that close both physically and relationally without being afraid. 
another thought is that the Bible is inherently incarnational in terms of thinking about communication with people who are different from us. Um, God, how did God communicate with us? He took divine truth, heavenly wisdom, that James calls heavenly wisdom, divine truth, and put it in human stories, human languages, human expressions with human authors. So he takes a divine truth and puts it in a human way of speaking so that we can understand it. That's what the Bible is. So that's how God has communicated to humanity is by using our forms of communication to communicate his truth, his, himself. So that all the, the Bible is incarnational in that sense that um, you know, heaven is coming down to earth in an earthly way so that we can understand it. So those are the big ideas and the implication of that for our ministry, both as a church, as Res Pres, but also just as individuals in our lives from people that we interact with every day, is that our, our ministry and our way of being in the world should, to take the incarnation and that idea of drawing near without fear, that should be our model. That's, that's the big idea for this. That instead of this unclean, clean divide that we default to, we got to be rethinking in terms of this fearlessly drawing near and coming alongside people the way that Jesus has come alongside us. Any thoughts on Talk about those stories about Jesus touching the unclean person, the leprosy, the one with the discharge, and that Old Testament mentality of unclean always, always contaminates the clean. Jesus in touching those people and then saying, "Your sins are forgiven." It's all this symbolic way of showing that Jesus' cleanliness, that His cleanness, goes to and, and, and counters or overtakes uncleanness. That Jesus' cleanness wins. In other words, that his moral perfection is transferred to us and overcomes our moral imperfection. So what you're saying is that instead of when we come to these social barriers and we see these boundaries, that camps, they're the sinners, they're unclean, and we're unclean, and we don't want to get near them because we're afraid of some uncleanliness. That's about as unbiblical as you can get. Because what we're actually doing in coming near to them is as Jesus' representatives, as ambassadors for, as, as the church being responsible for the ministry of reconciliation, that we're coming to that side with that moral, healing, cleansing power of Jesus in us. Right. And so when we come near, we, we don't have anything to fear. Right. Because the cleanness that we are giving or, or, or transmitting through, is in human terms, through the Spirit, with Jesus using us as His vessels in the world, we are doing the same thing that Jesus did. And that's kind of exciting. Yeah. So is that I was wondering what's the what's the motivator for not having fear? Like that was, you know, like it's not just that we're trying to imitate Jesus, right? I think 
um, what's driving the no fear in the approach and um, it's that it's what he's given us, right? Yeah. Right. So can you speak about that a little bit? <coughs> well, I think part, the first part is to recognize what is it that we're afraid of and should we be afraid of that? If, if what we're really afraid of is that being in a being close to somebody who, who's immoral or being in a social setting that's immoral, um, if what we're afraid of is that their sin is going to kind of infect us as well, then again we're starting from that presupposition that as if we were our, as if we were clean, as if we were coming in on a different plane or different level. Um, so I think just starting with a recognition of our own brokenness, our own sin and dysfunction, and our own uncleanness as the starting point um, to get rid of some of that fear. And then, yeah, and then everything that Rob just said, um, to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, how cool is that? I love that imagery, that you're protected by Christ's righteousness and it's covering you. Maybe, I, maybe an honest way to think about it is really in spite of the fear that we have about how somebody's brokenness is going to affect us or drag us in, we do it in spite of that because it's exactly what Jesus did to us. We're all the woman in the street. We really, really are. We're all, we're all just like that woman. You know? And despite that, when we engage in acts that are redemptive because we are Jesus ambassadors in a broken world we are really just transmitting the message that somebody did by the power of the spirit to us that despite our sinfulness God is reaching out to us despite this person's sinfulness and all the bias and prejudice and broken belief systems that it elicits or drags out of us at any given time and it does with all of us we reach out to that individual just in the same way that God has to us and that that is honoring them as image bearers and that is redemptive in how it translates the love of Christ to them in the flesh. That's that's our role. Well, I only got through my first point. <laughs> it's 4.15. <laughs> See y'all next week. <laughs> yeah. First high octane yeah. teaching. <laughs> Really? Yep. First point. First point. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be an eight-week session. Eight. This is going to run through the end of the year, folks. Hello. 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 Hello.